Hello, everybody. I'm Rupa Subramanya, and welcome to the Rupa Subramanya Show. Today, we have a great guest. Aaron Woodrick is director of the Domestic Policy Program at the Ottawa-based think tank, the McDonnell-Laurier Institute. Uh, he's been at the forefront of some great commentary on some very big domestic uh, issues like immigration reform, healthcare, the opioid crisis, and more recently, allegations of foreign election interference in our elections. Um, all of these issues have been in the news lately. Uh, we're going to talk about them, and it's a real pleasure uh, to welcome Aaron to the show. Aaron, uh, welcome uh, to the show. I wonder if we could uh, just uh, start by chatting about something you wrote recently um, in the Montreal Gazette on immigration reform. Uh, you, you start with the crisis at uh, Roxham Road. Uh, I've written about this as well recently. Uh, you have this crazy loophole in our third safe uh, country agreement with the U.S. where uh, would-be asylum seekers, if they cross illegally or what Canada euphemistically calls an irregular border crossing, uh, they have to have their case heard and not be sent back to the U.S. Uh, now, the Americans are too shy about enforcing their borders, yet the Trudeau government has been extremely lax. Why do you think this is? Um, is it driven by politics, incompetence, or or is something else going on here? Yeah, look, it's a bit of a pickle from a legal standpoint. Because of this deal we have with the Americans, um, it, it basically is a loophole, like you say. I mean, it's a loophole that's being abused dramatically right now, right? I mean, for many years, no one cared about this loophole because there was nobody coming. But the numbers of people who are coming, and to be clear, it's nothing like on the U.S. southern border or what they see in Europe with millions, but relative to what Canada had got before, we're talking about tenfold increases in the number of people. Mm -hmm. um, and I think this this really starts to eat away at, uh, you know, Canadians' confidence. I think a fundamental thing for a lot of people is having integrity in our borders. I mean, countries have to have borders. If you don't have a border in a country, you're kind of not really a country. And yes, if, of course, every country is going to be able to decide you know, how many refugees can we absorb? How much humanitarian support are we willing to offer? That's up to, you know, people in any given country. But you can't have people sort of abusing the system and sneaking in and using loopholes. Um, that undermines, I think, trust in our in our borders and our system generally. And frankly, it's not even fair to other refugees who are, who are going through the right process and following all the rules. I mean, they're essentially getting crowded out by these people who are breaking the rules. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, um, you know, a couple of uh follow-up questions to that. So Roxham Road is not a legal border crossing, yet it was closed during the pandemic, and then Trudeau decides to reopen it, uh, I think, I believe, in the fall of 2021. Uh, why why, why would you reopen a, uh, a border crossing that is not legal? Yeah, it doesn't make sense. I mean, why have legal ones if you're going to sort of openly send this invitation? And let's not forget the yeah. prime minister had it previously sort of uh, you know, signal that, you know, Canada is welcoming and almost almost sort of inviting people in not so many words yeah. to, to, to abuse these loopholes. So, you know, he says, well, you know, we've got a 5,000 mile border and we can't block all the spots. Well, as you point out, it was closed during the pandemic, so it can be done. And secondly, yes, maybe you can't close, you can't, it's not like you can stand a cop, you know, every 10 feet across a 5,000 mile border, but you can certainly make it harder you can certainly make it uh less accessible for people and you know they say well that's dangerous but it might also deter people i mean people are doing this they're using roxham road because it's easy to get to and if you make it less easy for them to abuse loopholes and it's it follows that fewer people are going to abuse them yeah um you also make a very interesting observation uh in your piece in this op-ed that 
unlike uh, uh, most Western liberal democracies, Canada has a near, a near universal all-party consensus, at least among the major parties, political parties, in support of large increases in immigration targets. Uh, but you note know that in some ways this is a facade. Uh, people are uh, afraid to challenge the official position because uh, because no one wants to be branded a racist or a xenophobe, and the consensus could crumble very quickly if things go south. Uh, do you want to elaborate on this argument? What's what's the actual level of support for high immigration targets in Canada, and uh, and how are the major political parties positioning themselves on this issue? Yeah. So first, I want to be clear. I mean, I'm I'm uh, I'm the child of an immigrant. My wife is children of immigrants. I'm from immigration. I think immigration has been good for Canada, and I think we are lucky that we live in a country where we have people who come here because they want to be Canadian. So that's a good thing. I also think that generally speaking, Canadians are are, are welcoming to immigrants. What I'm talking about, um, you know, in the piece I wrote is that this idea that people can't have reasonable concerns, most obviously about the number of immigrants that are coming, mm -hmm. and the reason for that. That even has nothing to do with even the types of immigrants. It has to do with things like housing. It has to do with things like infrastructure. It has to do with things like the fact that people can't find doctors. I mean, what is the point in welcoming people to a country where they you have nowhere for them to live and where they instantly become competitors and exacerbate a demand problem for housing that's already a huge problem for the Canadians who are already here? So I think uh, we need to be reasonable. We need to listen to the concerns about people who are saying, hold on, can we take this many people? What is the impact going to be on the rest of the country? Can we manage this level of immigration? We have to take that seriously because if we don't do that, mm -hmm. I think we're going to get a much nastier backlash. And I don't think anyone is going to like the outcome. There. Okay, so since you mentioned a number, you said number in, in your response, what is the magic number? I, I know a lot of people have been um, a little taken aback by the fact that Canada is now um, going to have 500,000 people coming in every year starting next year, I think. Um, what What is the magic number? I mean, I, I, get, I get all of the arguments. I've made these arguments myself that can the system actually support uh, this large influx of immigrants coming in? I'm also an immigrant myself. Um, but I do have concerns, um, just like um, uh, uh, the, the ones that you raised. Can the system actually support this large number of uh, immigrants coming in? How do you decide the number? Why 500,000? Yeah. Well, maybe part of the problem is that we're picking a number, right? I mean, we don't do this for a lot of other things. The government is trying to centrally plan a metric, which is really should be more market driven, right? I mean, part of the decisions that we make and our system is already structured this way frankly to a better degree than other countries where the the point system you know the immigrants that we select outside the humanitarian and the family categories are based on our economic needs right mm -hmm. the government tries to estimate so but we should go a step further in a lot of cases um you know i think and the model i mentioned in my piece is for refugees i mean the evidence shows that privately sponsored refugees that have people who support them and help them integrate and help them learn the language and find jobs, they have much greater success. It's a win-win for Canada and for the refugees than the ones that have government sponsorship. I think when it comes to economic categories, we need to look at this more. It needs to be employer-driven. It needs to be driven by places and industries where they have labor shortages and they can't find people. That's a better fit than picking a number and saying, well, we're just going to let in 300,000 or 500,000 or 800,000. It should be a market-driven process. That, I think, is the better way to ensure both they have the support and that there is a defensible rationale for letting those people, that, that level of people in.
Yeah. Uh, you know, I was also struck by this analogy that you make in your piece. Uh, you know, it's uh, an ana analogy between your argument on immigration and a very similar situation with socialized medicine, for example. So for decades, again, there was this all-party consensus on socialized me medicine, and many Canadians apparently identified this as a key feature of Canada or the Canadian identity. Anyone challenging it was seen as, uh, uh, you know, as was branded as cruel and heartless, and no party really touched it. But now you have these provincial healthcare systems that are basically collapsing all over Canada. They're falling apart. And provincial governments are now finally testing the waters by uh, privatizing more services. Um, how do you see this debate on socialized medicine and allowing a private alternative play out over the coming months? Um, you know, could, could, could this be an election issue? I, I should note that w one of the things that uh, struck me about the immigration issue is, is that there are a lot of liberal voices in the pages of the Globe and Mail and the Toronto Star, I think, uh, that have been uh, raising concerns about, you know, can we actually support this large influx of immigrants? Yeah, look, uh, first on the on the, uh, the healthcare debate, I think the taboo's gone. I think it's gone. I think that's a good thing. I think we can actually have a grown-up discussion about healthcare. I mean, it's kind of bizarre, the language around healthcare. It only really is here, right? I mean, you don't have this taboo against private healthcare in any other country, including progressive and lefty parties and politicians in other progressive countries. They just don't have this strange taboo around uh, a public uh, private healthcare. So when it comes to immigration, you know, what my hope is that we get out a little bit more nuance, that we can recognize that people can have legitimate concerns about immigration that isn't because you're a racist. And I don't want to say there aren't any racists. I mean, there are some people that just don't want immigrants because they don't want people who don't look like them to come here. I'm not talking about those people. I don't agree with those people. I agree with the people who say, you know, um, I would be fine with welcoming new people, but um, I can't find a family doctor. My kids can't afford a home until you address these things. I am vo I'm voicing the fact that I'm concerned that we don't have the, the ability to absorb, you know, hundreds of thousands of new people um, because there's just no room and nowhere to put them. Yeah. I mean, again, I mean, I asked the question, why? Why this increase in immigrants? Is there a, um, a labor shortage uh, in the country? Of course. I mean, we know that there is uh, labor constraint in Canada uh, exacerbated by the pandemic. Uh, what exactly is going on? Like, um, you know, I'm, I'm a little puzzled. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Yeah, well, look, part of it is demographic shifts and every, essentially every sort of, uh, you know, developed country is going to be de dealing with this problem. You've probably seen, people have seen in the news, the fertility rate has dropped sort of across the developed world. Um, you know, historically, the Im immigration is sort of made up for that gap. Um, and now and, and now the debate is like, well, what's the right level? And, and, and there's another separate debate about this, because some people say, well, why do we need new immigrants or why do we need to have more babies? Well, our, all our social safety nets are built on this sort of pyramid, right, where you sort of there are more people working than are retired. That ratio is shrinking dramatically. So it's going to put a lot of pressure on our health care system, um, on and, you know, pressure to increase taxes, things like CPP. So we do need to do something. We need to get the right mix between, um, you know, immigration and and having, you know, families in Canada having the, the amount of kids they want to have. It's not about 
telling people they have to have kids, but surely, and you know, there was other work out there showing that there are a lot of Canadians who there's a gap between how many kids they have and how many they want to have. Surely that seems like a legitimate public policy problem for governments to be wrestling with. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, sh uh, shifting gears a, a bit, uh, in your role as uh, Director of uh, Domestic Policy at, at McDonnell Laurie Institute, I believe you commissioned a study last fall um, assessing the response to the opioid crisis in BC uh, versus Alberta. Um, this this issue has been heating up with, you know, you have the usual progressive commentators decrying Alberta's approach and praising BC's. Um, what is the real story here? What exactly is the difference uh, in approaches between the two provinces? Um, are they really that different? And uh, what, what, in your opinion, is the way out of this opioid crisis? Yeah, look, this is a, this is a obviously a very charged topic, and I think it's hard to separate the politics from some of the facts here, right? It's it, it's very highly charged, and politicians have uh, a very strong interest to sort of make anyone proposing some alternative as the villain. So I think both on the sort of liberal and conservative sides, you've seen some both some exaggerations and some sort of vilification, misrepresentation of what these two differences are. You know, what we have in British Columbia and most of sort of the West Coast United States is what they call the sort of uh, the, the harm reduction safe supply approach. The, the logic behind this is people are going to do these drugs anyway. So we're going to give them clean versions of the drug, which is to say, I mean, they're still drugs that are bad for you, but they, they don't have sort of street uh, ingredients in them. So, um, you know, the odds of an overdose are lower. You have these safe injection sites. So people have help on site so they don't die. Um, you know, the thing that that has done, of course, is that people they don't die at these injection sites because there are people, there's staff around. So that's the sort of thing that the safe supply advocates are sort of declaring victory on saying, well, people come to these sites, they do drugs, they don't die. That's a win because you can't help people recover if they don't die. Uh, and that's their argument. I think if that's where you stop the analysis, that's pretty hard to argue with. The problem is there's a lot more going on here. I think a lot of people believe that it's, you know, yes, keeping people alive is important, but it's not the only thing. What happens after that? How do you help them recover? How do you incentivize them to recover? What are the impacts of things like, um, if you look at places like the Lower East Side in Vancouver, I mean, the 10 cities in homelessness is growing. It is not shrinking. Crime is rising. It is not shrinking. So there are other problems associated with this. Like, yes, it's great that more people aren't dying. That's a victory. I'm not saying that's bad. But you can't just stop there and say, you know, we won. This is the solution. And in Alberta, what they're doing is a little bit different. Um, they do have uh, an element of harm reduction. They don't give you the street drugs. They give you sort of synthetic drugs that address the high, but don't, or sorry, that address the craving, but don't give you the high. Um, but they 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 have all kinds of levels of off ramps into treatment, which is all fully funded. So, you know, in Alberta, it's not just about keeping you alive. It's about what can we do to try and get your life back on track as well? That's the real distinction between these two approaches. Mm -hmm. I think some people are trying to frame Alberta as some sort of, you know, retro 1980s, you know, uh, you know, throw everybody in jail who smokes one joint kind of thing. That's not what Alberta is doing. Alberta is mm -hmm. trying, I think to take the best of the harm reduction approach, which is keep people alive, but also recognize that for society's benefit and for these individuals, you can't stop there. You have to try and look at everything you can do to help them recover, to get them off drugs and to, to incentivize recovery, which is, which is something that we don't see in places like British Columbia. Yeah, so you know, on, on a related issue, uh, BC took the extraordinary step recently of uh, legalizing the possession of a small quantity of illegal hard drugs, I, I believe uh, hard drugs such as 
uh, cocaine, heroin, etc. Uh, yet the production, sale, and purchase of these drugs is still illegal. Uh, so can you tell me how exactly this is supposed to work? How does it make sense to legalize possession when you can't legally buy it? Yeah, I think this is just another step in the whole destigmatization argument, right? It's that we 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 can't, and, and, and it's also a matter of, well, we don't want to criminalize someone who's got an addiction if they can't help themselves, and all they're doing is feeding their own habit as opposed to um, increasing the supply and getting other people addicted. You know, that, that that's a relatively minor crime. You know, my response to that is that, is this really going to change very much? I mean, in a lot of cases, when these laws were on the book, they weren't enforced anyway. So I really don't know that there's going to be a really dramatic shift uh, mm -hmm. here. And, and, you know, the, the, when it comes to coming back to the stigma issue, I mean, I think there, there's a legitimate debate about, you know, sometimes stigma is a, it, it can be a useful incentive to people, right? And I find that there's a big, um, there's a big disconnect in sort of progressive circles between stigmatizing things like cigarettes and alcohol versus, uh, versus uh, cannabis and hard drugs. I mean, mm -hmm. why, why, in some ways, is it acceptable to try and stigmatize it? and see that as an effective way to get people to change their behavior. In other cases, it's like, well, we can't do that because it will, uh, it, it won't help. I, I just, I, I find there's an inconsistency there. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, switching gears yet again, uh, Aaron, uh, let's talk about the public inquiry into the Emergencies Act. Um, <laughs> um, you know, it's disappointed many, uh, including myself. I've, uh, I've written about this as well. And despite all of the caveats uh, in what Rouleau said, ultimately he was rubber stamping uh, what the Trudeau government did. Um, I, again, you take uh, you had an interesting take criticizing the report. Uh, you're you're also a lawyer by profession. Uh, could you could you dissect where you think Rouleau went wrong and whether he ought to have found um, whether he ought to have found whether the government uh, acted in incorrectly in using emergency powers? Uh, you note in your piece that the Rouleau report is not the last word, and ultimately this will be decided in the court of public opinion, uh, presumably at the ballot box in the next election. Uh, do you think this uh, this will whenever that will whenever that's expected to happen? Do you think this issue will res resonate enough with especially fence sitters uh, that could sway how they how they vote in the next election? Yeah, I mean, on the first point on the electoral consequences, I actually think the people, um, you know, on in the minority on this issue, so, you know, supporters of the convoy, I think it's going to resonate more with them because they is going to be fresher in their mind. I mean, a lot of the people who came uh, to the protest, I mean, they did it out of exasperation. They did it out of frustration. They did it because the measures being imposed on them were causing real hardship in their lives. And so mm -hmm. for them, that is going to weigh heavily on their mind. I would I would guess that probably most of those people were not voting liberal anyway. So I don't know about the electoral consequences. You know, in terms of the report itself, uh, I, first of all, I do want to say there were some there were some good parts of the report. I thought that Rouleau did a much better job um, than some other certainly other observers recognizing, for example, that, you know, not everybody in the convoy was a racist and there was not, you know, he, I think he did a fair job of saying, you know what, the media and some politicians, they really didn't help this by trying to characterize this as some, you know, uniformly hate-filled um, get-together. Uh, I think he I think he did a better job with the nuance there. So I'll give him credit for that. What really bothered me, though, was that while recognizing it wasn't his job to make a legal determination, he kind of went ahead and did it anyway. And then he did it with all these sort of caveats saying, well, you know, I'm not entirely sure. And I recognize reasonable 
people could disagree. And I recognize the court is going to have the final say on this. But anyway, I'm going to go ahead and say, I think it was valid under the law. You know, to me, the lawyer, you, you, you either you either sort of state your opinion because you're supposed to and stand behind it or don't say anything at all. He could have actually just de demurred and said, you know what? It's not my job to make a ruling of legality. That's for the court. Um, and he didn't do that. I, I, the other thing, a theme that sort of ran throughout it that bothered me was that he seemed to almost be leaning all the time to looking for ways to make it easier to use the act. You know, people need to recognize this law is so unusual and extreme. It's it's basically supposed to be, it's designed to be very hard to use. Like you, you should, government should have to jump through so many hoops to use this thing that they almost never even want to think about using it. And all the recommendations that Rouleau makes are almost about how can we make it easier in the future for a government to use this in, in any context? I think that's very problematic. I think it's against the spirit of the act. And I think it's the opposite. I think the government, if anything, um, there were there were some wiggle rooms over certain interpretations, people are probably familiar now with this, this defini definition of uh, threat to national security under, under the CSIS Act. I mean, these are things that um, were put in place to make it hard to use. And Rouleau is basically viewing them as obstacles. And I'm like, yes, they are obstacles. They were there for a good reason mm -hmm. and we should keep them there. We should tighten them up. We shouldn't be saying, oh, well, we've got to make it easier for governments to use this tool uh, down the road. And I fear now because of that report, there are going to be people who are saying, oh yeah, Let's uh, let's make this uh, easier to use. And one last thing on that, I really feel a lot of people make the tremendous mistake of their position on the act and its use falling along the line of whether they like the convoy or not. I think that is a tremendous mistake. It, people need to think of it in a context where they don't know the nature of the protest and they don't know whether they're sympathetic to it or not. That is the proper test because someday I, and i genuinely worry about this there's going to be a different government and a different protest and all the people that were happy to use this hammer on the convoy are going to be horrified when a future government uses this act for all, and they're going to use all the same arguments that the trudeau government using as a convoy the only difference is that people are going to be sympathetic to the cause where they weren't sympathetic to the convoy and i i'm a firm believer that governments should not use tools you know against their enemies that they then could then, you know, have used against them down the field. Don't use a tool if you're not prepared to see a different government with a very different point of view. Use the same tool later on. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's got to be some consistency. And uh, and, and this, uh, you know, cut uh, cuts through, you know, partisan uh, uh, politics. And, uh, and and of course, I mean, what 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 uh, what happened sets an incredibly bad pre precedent for you know for you know that and as you point to this that future governments could use this for an issue that uh their supporters uh um you know uh, uh care about and uh, and it's, it's 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 very dangerous uh and yeah and um, i'm i i have you know i must say i'm just more than just disappointed i'm actually quite worried <laughs> but uh but anyway um let's uh let's uh t talking about being worried let's talk about uh, what's in the news right now, which is uh, China's interference in Canada's elections. Um, until now, uh, I, I feel that Trudeau has been Teflon man. Many people have referred, referred to him in that way. Uh, but finally, it appears that this very serious issue of China's interference uh, in our elections, uh, this might finally spell the end for the Trudeau government. Um, so far, the NDP, which uh, at first joined hands with the Conservatives in agreeing uh, that there should be a public inquiry, seems to have gone radio silent after Trudeau uh, quashed the idea. 
Do you think this special rapporteur is meant to give the NDP a face-saving, um, a face-saving way to keep supporting the government? Um, how do you think? How do you think things will play out? Yeah, look, I, with, with respect to the NDP first, I mean, I, I understand their rationale for striking this deal as a sort of, well, we could be a positive influence and we can deliver a tangible result. I don't know that they properly weighed the trade-off to that. I think if to the average Canadian, it just looked very bizarre to be both sort of a member, almost a coalition partner, and also a critic. Like like every time Jagmeet Singh opens his mouth to say, well, you know, I'm going to hold the government account for this, people were like, well, you, you have the power to do that right now. I mean, you can right now, you can hold them very accountable. And he never does. So I, I just it just seems the very strange, the obvious question that I think a lot of uh, people will ask. You know, as to whether, you know, the, the, the prime minister is going to use another one of his political lives up on this. I mean, he, if, if, if he's got nine, he's probably running out of them now. Mm-hmm. You know, part of that is his specific government's track record. But part of it is also just how long he's been there. I mean, people forget it's coming up on eight years that Justin Trudeau has been prime minister. Every mm-hmm. government starts to pile up baggage. This is not yeah. specific to him. And, you know, I mean, people if people remember the euphoria of 2015, he was this fresh, new progressive face. I mean, that feels like a lifetime ago for a lot of people, including for a lot of his voter coalition. So, you know, I do think um, and the other thing, too, I, I don't think he's Teflon, man. I think he's consistently lost support over these issues. I think blackface was a hit. I think SNC-Lavalin was a hit. I think all the ethics violations were a hit. I mean, I think these are hits. People forget he lost the popular vote the last two elections. Yes, the, the quirks of our electoral system means he stays in power. That Those are the rules of the game. But in terms of the number of Canadians that voted for him, um, he was outvoted by his opponents the last two two elections. So he's all he's not exactly starting from a position of strengths here, right? So I um I you know I imagine they're gonna carry on as as long as they can. Um, uh, I think the government is at the point now where they they recognize they're probably not the favorites in the next election, so they're going to try and forestall that day as long as they can and hope that something comes up that um may, might change the game. You know, a misstep by Mr. Polyev or some other sort of economic good news or something that they can change the channel with. Because right now, this Chinese interference story, um, it's interesting. I think had Mr. Trudeau not sort of spent a lot of his political capital already. People might be willing to give him the benefit of the doubt now, but with things like SNC-Lavin and all these other instances where he sort of, if not lied, certainly omitted things that he should have said, um, people now, when he says things like, well, I didn't know, or well, I'm going to appoint an eminent, you know, impartial person, a lot of people are not willing to give him the benefit of the doubt of it, and that's, he only has himself to blame for that. Yeah. Well, I mean, since you mentioned the elections, uh, last question for you. If the election were called today, there's a good chance, according to various polls, that Pierre Polyever would be the next prime minister of Canada. If if the liberal government survives its full term, then we won't see an election till 2025. Um, how do you see this battle playing out between now and then? Yeah, I mean, it, it, the interesting question for Mr. Polyev is that, um, you know, he was obviously elected uh, with some very enthusiastic supporters. I mean, he clobbered his opponents in that leadership race. It wasn't even close. I guess the question for him is when the fire is burning that hot, how do you keep it burning at just the right yeah. temperature, right? A lot of his uh, people already in his coalition really don't like Justin Trudeau. I mean, we already know that. The question is those folks that are on the fence. Maybe they don't love Trudeau, but they kind of need uh, an alternative that's a little more inviting. How do we get those people? That's like that's the tougher hill to climb, those last 5% for Mr. Polyev. And it's going to be interesting to see how he balances keeping his supporters who are very angry, happy, and convinced that he's in their corner, while also reaching out to people who 
maybe aren't really angry, but are kind of annoyed with the current government and could be sold on, you know, voting conservative. How does he walk that line? That's going to be an interesting challenge for him in the, in the coming years. Okay. Well, on that note, Aaron, I really appreciate you sharing your insights with us and for being on the show. And uh, I look forward to having you back again sometime soon. That was great. Thanks for having me.